Uh, good morning, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This morning we're back with another segment in our occasional series of programs concerned with Latin American countries and cultures today. We continue to move from our discussions of the southern border and the crisis on immigration to a much bigger picture that takes us farther to the south. This morning, we're going to look at Argentina, a country not so often in the news, but central in understanding the continent. Our guest this morning is Rebecca Herman, a professor of Latin American Studies at University of California in Berkeley. Her work explores 20th century Latin American social, political, and environmental history in a global context. Her first book, Cooperating with the Colossus, was published by Oxford University Press in September 2022. It reconstructs a, a contentious U.S. military basing project advanced in Latin America during World War II under the banner of Inter-American Cooperation and Hemisphere Defense. Herman's current research takes her fascination with conflicts over sovereignty and governance in international affairs into the field of environmental history. Her new book will explore various environmental issues through international politics, transnational environmental activism, nationalism, and economic development. These all came to a head in the Americas from the 1970s to the 1990s, including the future of Antarctic governance, uh, the disposal of nuclear waste, industrial pollution, and deforestation. Prior to entering academia, Herman spent several years in Argentina with shorter stints in Chile, Bolivia, and Brazil. In Buenos Aires, she worked with Memoria Abierta, a civil association of human rights organizations, and later as a freelance translator and documentarian. And Herman earned her PhD in history at UC Berkeley and her BA in literature, history, and Spanish at Duke University. So good morning, Professor Herman. Good morning. I'm happy to be here. And can we call you Rebecca or Becca? What do you like? Yes, please do. Becca was great. Becca. Well, we would like to get to know a little bit about who we're talking to, as do our listeners. So uh, would you mind, how did you get interested in Latin America? What took you to Argentina for three years? Well, I think my experience was similar to a lot of my students that I have at Berkeley, where I got to college, and the first thing I learned was how little I knew about the world, because our public education system really focuses only on certain parts of the world at the expense of others. And I sort of quickly set about organizing my studies around parts of the world that I just hadn't been exposed to before. And I became particularly um, interested in Latin America specifically after taking a class about U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. And uh, frankly, I was really appalled by a lot of what I learned and the fact that I was a very well-educated, you know, fairly privileged citizen, and yet this was all news to me. So I first sort of entered the field through an interest in U.S. Latin American relations then I became interested in Latin America in its own right. I began studying the histories of different parts of, of the region. 
I ended up um, developing a research project about Chilean collective memory, so about the memory of the dictatorship in in uh, Chile. Uh, and for that project, I went to Santiago to do some research. And during this summer that I spent in Santiago, I wanted to see another part of the region. So I took just a weekend trip to Buenos Aires and just fell in love with the city. It's a really vibrant, dynamic place. And um, I decided at that point that I'd really like to uh, spend time living abroad after I graduated from college and really was interested in, in returning to Argentina if I could find a way to do it. Um, so fortunately, I was able to, to secure funding to do an internship with this organization, Memoria Abierta, that is, uh, it's essentially a, a human rights um, civil association that unites a number of human rights organizations that were uh, begun during a period of, of state terror in Argentina that, that has now created a documentary archive. So they collect testimonies of people who survived torture under the last military dictatorship, people who went into exile, people whose family members were disappeared by the state. And they assemble documents that were collected by different human rights organizations so that historians like me can go and and sort of try to reconstruct that really painful history. Um, so that was why I returned. And then I ended up staying for several years because I sort of built a life there and, and began taking on translation work to sort of um, make ends meet after my funding ran out and ultimately only came back to the United States when I decided to pursue a PhD in Latin American history. Well, that's great. And uh, you were telling us that um, <laughs> you went to Chile, who is next to Argentina, but Argentina is the second largest country in South America after Brazil, as you know, mm -hmm. and the eighth largest in the world. Yet this is not a widely known place in this country. So could you give uh, uh, to ourselves and to our listeners um, some details about the country of Argentina? Sure, well, we, yeah. We, um, we, uh, we do know a little bit about soccer. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, Argentina, you're right, is one of the lesser known countries in the United States, I think, in part because of how far away it is. You know, uh, I think I, growing up in California, when I thought of Latin America as a region, I mostly thought of Mexico and Central America. I thought of it as a region that's very close by. So actually, I was quite surprised when I arrived at the airport to fly to Santiago, Chile and realized what a long journey it was going to be. Uh, if you fly to, to Santiago or to Buenos Aires, you usually fly to the East Coast and then you still have an 11 hour flight ahead of you from there. So in California, we don't think of ourselves as being closer to Europe than we are to parts of Latin America, but in fact we are, it's a big, the Americas is a big region. Um, so Argentina is a large country, as you noted. It's a country that is uh, very um, environmentally diverse. There are regions that are, you know, have become quite famous internationally. Patagonia it straddles the Argentine and Chilean borders. Um, the Andes mountain range runs through that region. The north of Argentina is also mountainous, but more of a desert climate. Um, with a very large indigenous descended population. Uh, so culturally, the country is quite diverse, although it doesn't necessarily feel that way when you're in Buenos Aires. Um, uh, the Iguazu Falls are also an international destination. They're some of the biggest waterfalls in the, in the world, and they sit at the border of Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. 
um, the southern Argentina, one of the parts of my research, is, as you all mentioned in that wonderful introduction, is around environmental politics. And not many people know that Argentina claims part of Antarctica as national territory. So the Antarctic Peninsula is claimed by both Argentina and Chile as part of their national territories, even though Antarctica has no uh, native human population. Um, uh, let's see, in terms of the history of the country, um, you know, the history of Argentina is also a bit different from the parts of Latin America that I think Californians are more familiar with, in part because of the nature of Spanish colonialism there. Uh, so the the real centers of the Spanish Empire in the Americas were located in central Mexico and in Peru. Um, Argentina was very peripheral to the Spanish colonial project for much of the colonial period. And so the nature of social relations and the economy developed differently there. Um, the state's relationship to indigenous communities has also been different. Uh, there was a period that sort of resembled the United States westward expansion called the conquest of the desert, where the state really you know, carried out uh, some pretty genocidal policies and um, it killed many of the indigenous people who had been living in Argentina. Um, Argentina also actively uh, fostered immigration from Europe, uh, which is another sort of parallel to the United States. In Argentina, this was imagined as part of a modernizing project. There was a deliberate effort to whiten the population in the 19th century, which was viewed as a path to modernity, according to the sort of racialized thinking around um, uh, uh, republicanism and democracy at the time that we obviously uh, don't ascribe to today. Um, but so Argentina, this sort of myth of Argentine exceptionalism often points to Argentina as being a particularly white country in Latin America. And many people in Latin America are sort of offended by this uh, uh, distinction. Yeah, and, and that's uh, so true what you're saying, because um, many times we, uh, even in Chile, you know, we are also uh, fed the same the same idea that Argentinians or Chileans are more European-like of what mm -hmm. you will see in immediately in Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, and other places. So mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about this uh, policy that uh, it makes Argentina different demographically and singled out from South America? Uh, how that really uh, reflects this uh, different waves of European immigration, but also how it reflects this idea of centralizing the government and idea, the idea of the identity in a country. Because mm -hmm. when we are in, uh, you know, I'm from Chile, so I used to go from Santiago to Buenos Aires just to enjoy myself, uh, to enjoy the city that you described, which is gorgeous. Uh, but when you move a little bit away from Buenos Aires, uh, you immediately start seeing that indigenous presence and even uh, African descendants could be more found, and not to mention, and we can discuss later, the issue with the Mapuche people and how the colonization of the area is different from other areas in South America. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really is this confluence of factors that you described. I mean, part of it goes back to what we we're talking about with the colonial period, because Argentina was not a real center of empire. Um, and the nature of the industry that developed didn't have a strong demand for enslaved labor. So Brazil, for example, has a huge Afro-descendant population all along the Caribbean coast to the Caribbean islands, largely because of the nature of the colonial economy in those places. 
sugar, coffee, um, any type of real agricultural plantation economies typically relied heavily upon um, enslaved labor. Um, in Argentina, the economy in the earlier colonial period really developed around contraband, a black market coming out of the silver mines in, in Bolivia. Um, and cattle, uh, which also is not a very labor intensive industry. And so there were fewer enslaved people brought to Argentina comparatively compared to other parts of the region. So that's part of the explanation. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting scholarship being done now that is really interested in looking about how the African uh, uh, influence and the Afro-descended Argentines that were there because there weren't none have been steadily erased by the sort of advance of a narrative about Argentine national identity that really emphasizes whiteness, again, viewing whiteness as something that reflects modernity. Um, so part of that is about the myths that nations tell about themselves. Part of that is also about um, the center of power, as you mentioned, is very much centralized in Buenos Aires. But as I mentioned, the northern uh, regions of Argentina, Jujuy, Salta, are very heavily populated by indigenous communities or people with indigenous ancestry. And the cultures there, the foods there really reflect that difference. And so in reality, it's a very heterogeneous population. Um, it, even if the demographics in Buenos Aires, I mean, there's a moment in the early 20th century when the majority of, of residents were European born. Many of my friends when I lived in Argentina have European passports because they're the grandchildren of Italian or Spanish immigrants. Um, so in that part, that very powerful part of the country, the sort of the presence of uh, European immigrants is, is very um, visible in the food, in the culture, in the, in the demographics. But part of that has been a very active effort to erase these other important influences in Argentine history. And it's a, an urban country, I, I think. Is that right? Um, with big cities, and especially uh, Buenos Aires is a very big city. Yes, Buenos Aires is a very big, dynamic city, really beautiful architecture, uh, great public transportation, very walkable. It was a great, it's a great livable city. And then there are a number of other very large dynamic cities in the country also. But there are, um, you know, the north, uh, I would say, is not particularly urban. There are urban centers in each of the major provinces, but a lot of smaller towns and villages. Uh, so it kind of varies across the landscape. And then there are large parts of the country that are not inhabited because they're protected or they are, um, you know, areas of nat nat sort of natural landscapes that are disconnected from uh, other centers of, of uh, urban life. And industry, is it industrial? Uh, yeah, there was a strong industrialization effort in the mid 20th century. So some of the, you know, I'm a historian, I'm always thinking about where the interest is among historians uh, are really interested in labor histories and the history of industrialization in, in Argentina. But a really important source of Argentine uh, economic wealth has also just been in the industries around wheat, the production of wheat and cattle. So neither of those are particularly urban um, and, you know, sort of thrived in the natural landscape around around Buenos Aires. Yeah, uh, this is very interesting. Oh, sorry, Carl, you wanted to say something. Oh, I was just going to remind you, uh, Loretto and, uh, and Becca, we should pause for a minute here just to say that this is KZYX Community Radio with Loretta Rojas, and I'm Cal Winslow, and we're talking with Rebecca Herman, 
who's a professor of Latin American studies at the University of California in Berkeley. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We uh, here with Cal today are part of uh, talking about California, and uh, we offer series twice a year focusing in Latin America and also in um, in the situation in the border, the, the topics about immigration and others. But we just did a series a year ago about the war in Ukraine that is worth it to listen. So if any of you would like to hear more of our interviews and past guests that continue being uh, on top of the news and important topics to consider and learn about, I want to invite all the listeners to look for our programs. You can find them in any of our podcast platforms. Uh, when you consume podcasts, just type KZYX Public Affairs and you will see all the programs that our radio station offers are, are done by our volunteers here in Mendocino County. And also you can find our programs are archived in the, our YouTube channel. It's called Mendo Latino because I also have a Spanish-speaking program. But uh, the programs of I do with Cal Winslow in English, they are also available in YouTube where you can stream them. And finally, naturally, they are archived in KCYX, www kcyx.org, uh, type talking about California, and you'll find our programs. So thank you so much for listening today. And uh, let's continue our interview with Rebecca Herman. There does seem to be, uh, Becca, a new wave of uh, progressive change developing in, in South America. I wonder, does it go beyond uh, Brazil, an important change there in the governance Um, is is this the case in uh, Argentina uh, or not? And um, what is the impact both of the, the changes on uh, Argentinian society as well as uh, how Argentina relates to the rest of uh, Latin America? As a historian, I never know where to end my classes, right? Because I teach a modern Latin American history class and I think, okay, how close to the present am I comfortable with getting? I like a good 30 year buffer between me and my analysis. However, uh, it's been interesting since I finished my, um, well, let me first say when I was in Argentina, it was the early 2000s. Nestor Kirchner was elected in 2003 and he was part of a period called, that's often referred to as the pink Way, the pink tide or the pink wave, which is to say a resurgence of left of center parties and left of center political candidates after um, a, a weird period in the 1990s. Uh, and it used to be I would end my class with the pink tide and say, okay, the political pendulum seems to be shifting back towards the left of center, and that's where we are now. But then there was this period where the right was resurgent. And uh, we saw that across the region um, in Brazil and Chile and Argentina. And it seems like the pendulum once more is swinging back to the left of center. As you noted, that is the case in, in Brazil. It's the case in Chile. And it is also the case in Argentina. What Argentina seems to be struggling with the most today, however, is inflation. Inflation is really a, a, a big problem that the last several administrations haven't quite been able to uh, correct. To give you a sense, when I lived in Buenos Aires, I paid 400 pesos a month for my rent. 
when I returned to Argentina after many years away, just a couple years ago, I arrived in the airport and bought a coffee and my coffee was 500 pesos. And I was just sort of blown away because I hadn't been keeping up with what the exchange rate was. And it had shifted so dramatically that now a cup of coffee costs what my rent used to cost monthly. I think that because of that, a lot of the sort of social agenda that that defines the folks who identify as left of center has not been front and center in the public discourse. It has it has been really difficult to, to, to tackle because of these really pressing economic issues. So there's an upcoming presidential election and I was in Buenos Aires in November and it seemed like my friends weren't really sure which way things might go. Um, unlike in the United States, their election season doesn't begin two years out. <laughs> so it's still unclear what the, how things will shape up. But uh, for now, at least, it, it is the case that Nestor Kirchner's party is in, it currently back in power. Right. And he was elected uh, after that crisis they have in, in what, what year it was? 2000 in December? 2001. 2001, mm -hmm. when they have yeah. eight presidents in a week. So uh, could you explain um, a little bit more about uh, how Argentina Argentina, sorry, ended in this uh, situation with with the economic situation of inflation? I'm as far as I understand, uh, at several points, Argentina have not been able to pay back to the, mon the International Monetary Fund. And that has created a series of, um, how do you call it? Um, les han puesto algunas, eh, los han multados o lo, les han dado, um, they have been punished for not uh -huh. paying these mm -hmm. uh, credits uh, also with the uh, other international banks. So can you explain a little bit of how this crisis came about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can do my best. I mean, I think it's it's useful to go back to, um, you know, the post-war period and maybe talk a little bit about the military government, uh, Please the do. most recent military government. So, um, you know, throughout Latin America, uh, during the Cold War period, there was a sort of Uh, polarization um, in politics. And um, there was a growing feeling among folks on the left that electoral reforms were not sufficient or were not an accessible way to pursue change. You saw more groups on the left begin to be open to armed revolution, for example, the way that uh, Castro in Cuba was. Not everywhere. In Chile, you had the successful, um, you know, socialism through the ballot box experiment under Salvador Allende, where people who identified with the left believed that you could pursue these kinds of changes without armed revolution, that you could do it through an electoral democracy within the bounds of the constitution. But then the coup against Allende in 73 seemed to suggest that actually maybe that's not possible in the Cold War context. Um, and more and more people began to think that electoral politics just weren't, uh, were not a viable path towards the kinds of social justice reforms that people were interested in. And uh, in places where uh, leftists did resort to uh, attempts at armed revolution, right-wing members of the military often responded with really brutal uh, repression. And uh, in the 1970s in South America, nearly the entire continent was under uh, the rule of authoritarian regimes led by right-wing figures in, uh, in the nation's militaries. 
And these military uh, members were sort of notorious for carrying out really drastic human rights abuses against um, citizens. So in Argentina, you know, there were a number of military governments on and off over the course of the 20th century, but the most recent dictatorship, which was from 1976 to 1983, was far and away the most uh, violent and repressive. Uh, Human rights organizations estimate that 30,000 people uh, were murdered or disappeared, as they say. Um, Disappeared refers to the fact that citizens were abducted by the state and then never seen again. So in a, in a lot of cases, their bodies weren't found and, and um, uh, you know, the sort of legitimate forms of, of, uh, uh, of detention and, and sort of criminal justice were not pursued. Um, so uh, what does this have to do with the economy? Part of what it has to do with the economy is that it was during that period of military rule, which, you know, resulted from a coup, um, the military government took out took on a ton of debt from international banks and international lenders. And so a lot of people who opposed this government for any number of reasons having to do with human rights abuses also argued that the debt that Argentina took on during that period of illegitimate government was illegitimate and should not be put on the Argentine people uh, to pay back because this was not a legitimate government government that had the support of uh, the general population. That argument was not so convincing to the IMF, for instance, and this came on the heels of sort of a longer period of of uh, of economic turmoil. Um, the decade of the 1980s is often referred to as the lost decade in Latin America because it was a period of such dramatic economic stagnation across the region. So as Argentina is coming out of this period of dictatorship into a democratic regime for the first time since the early 70s, the country's also in a worse position to pay back that debt that the dictatorship has has taken on. And that has been, it's been a really difficult situation to resolve because a lot of those sort of more social justice oriented or social welfare oriented programs and policies that the left of center would like to implement in order to improve the quality of, of life of people uh, uh, who are suffering are difficult to do uh, when you're trying to repay international debts, which often have strings attached that require the state to limit those very kinds of programs. Um, I think wrapped up in this then is sort of a problem around national sovereignty and international debt, right? The Argentine government's ability to implement the kinds of policies that it wants to are circumscribed in that uh, context. And it has been a problem that's plagued the country for the last several decades. There was this major economic crisis in 2001 um, that actually sort of enabled uh, leftist politics to rebound in some ways because it exposed the further right-wing governments for, as the, of this sort of like moral bankruptcy. And, um, and that allowed the pink tide to, to take place because the suffering was so widespread. But again, that that pendulum continues to swing back and forth between the two uh, uh, sides of center and um, economic problems continue to really, uh, I think, um, uh, command center stage. We haven't said, or you haven't said, (laughs) very much uh, about uh, the United States and Argentina. And maybe we can back up again 
and you could give us a, an account of the, that relationship, how it's existed in the past and maybe uh, today. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when I moved back to the United States to get my PhD in Latin American history, my intention was to study Argentine history because I had, you know, spent so much time there and I wanted that bridge to continue kind of traveling back and forth between the two countries. But when I ended up writing my first book, uh, which is about U.S. Latin American relations uh, during the Second World War, um, Argentina didn't actually make that much sense as one of the central countries that I focused on. So my first book doesn't touch on Argentina at all. Part of the reason is because while the United States has had a really uh, profound influence in the region um, for the entire period since the age of independence, in the in the 19th century in the early 20th century the us was particularly interventionist and involved in the politics of the countries that are closest to the us so uh, the us intervened particularly sort of late 19th early 20th century the us intervened constantly in the political affairs of uh, the central american republics mexico the caribbean republics um and while the rhetoric was very much about the Americas as a, as a region and the United States wanted to assert the Americas, Latin America as the United States sphere of influence, you hear Latin America talked about as the United States backyard. The reality is uh, before World War II, uh, European powers had much more influence in South America than the United States did. Britain in particular was much more important to the Argentine economy than the United States was Argentine elites looked to France, um, particularly those who were sort of um, these kind of Europhile elites that I described that were so eager to to encourage European migration. They thought of cultural sophistication as rooted in Europe, right? They weren't interested in the United States as that sort of a mo- uh, model. Um, and Argentina tried to position itself as a sort of counterweight to the United States. Right. It's this huge country. It's a big country in South America. There was an idea that Argentina in international politics in the region could counter the United States influence and was often, uh, you know, very pleased to uh, in Pan American meetings, for example, take up the position of of counterweight to to U.S. hegemony. Uh, It's not until the second half of the 20th century that U.S. influence really becomes much more significant to politics in South America. Um, and we see this, for example, through U.S. meddling in Chilean politics uh, in the second half of the 20th century and support for um, a number of efforts to try to prevent Salvador Allende from becoming president and then ultimately to uh, ensure that he was not successful once he did become president. Um, in Argentina, uh, the U.S. would certainly have been very supportive of uh, military coup. This is the context in which the United States is obsessed with anti-communism and is very concerned about any sign that, uh, you know, communist insurgency might be gaining ground in different parts of Latin America after um, the Cuban revolution becomes more closely aligned with the Soviet Union, this uh, sort of fixation on the threat of communism and the project of anti-communism becomes much more pronounced for the United States throughout the Americas. So the Argentine military could count on U.S. support in uh, uh, staging a coup and holding on to power in an authoritarian manner 
so long as they were very anti-communist, right? At this point, the U.S. would prefer an anti-communist authoritarian over a civilian democratic government that might be too soft on communism. Um, So in terms of anti-U.S. sentiment uh, that you might encounter in Argentina, it's typically for that reason, right? For this historic role of the United States as sort of interventionist in the politics of of Latin American countries. Um, It's not something you'd experience personally, but just in terms of people's thinking about the nature of politics in the region. I think that the United States throughout Latin America does not have the best uh, reputation. Does Argentina see itself uh, aligned to, oriented to the other South American countries or to to Europe or uh, what's the case there? Yeah, I bet it, I think it varies a lot depending on who you talk to and how they identify within Argentine society. I mean, politically, there's been a big effort to form international alliances with other countries in Latin America. Um, And the idea of a sort of Latin American or South American uh, alliance that could counter the Pan-American alliance that includes the United States, that's a through line throughout the the history of politics in the region. As I mentioned, there are people who really embrace this narrative of Argentina as an exceptionally white country in Latin America. You'll sometimes hear elites say, oh, we're more like Europe than we are like Latin America. Um, So that is very much alive in parts of the population. But then there are, you know, there's a really strong identification and solidarity with other parts of Latin America, among other parts of of the population. So it's so interesting to see the different uh, variables that... um have shaped the Argentina. We know uh, when we study Argentina, we always talk about uh, caudillism, you know, el el caudillo, these emblematic figures that will somehow lead the country into a, naturally, you know, the the first one that comes to mind is um, Juan Domingo Perón and and his wife, Evita Perón, who is an icon that um, I know it was a, a musical was made out of her persona, mm-hmm. but uh, but in reality, she's an adored figure in uh, in Argentina. And as you were mentioning, also the Kirchner. And, uh, and now they had as a president, the wife of um, Cristina Fernandez Kirchner is, has been a president and very controversial figure. Uh, can you talk about a little bit about to help us understand how these iconic figures shape the way the politics in Argentina are deal. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Perón is uh, the most important influential historical figure in the history of the country. I would say um, throughout the, throughout Latin America, the timeline varies in different parts of the region, but you see a rise in what we think of as mass politics in the 1930s and 40s, roughly speaking. In Argentina, it actually begins a bit earlier in 1910 because of an electoral reform. But the basic gist is, if the 19th century was kind of marked by systems of government that really protected and benefited the economic and political elites of different countries. In the 20th century, you see more and more demands on national governments to uh, sort of new ideas about their obligations to citizens. So you begin to see labor laws, you begin to see maternity care, you begin to see, you know, the expansion of public education and kind of uh, all manners of what we think of as social safety nets across the region. 
And in a lot of cases, these kinds of, um, you begin to see politicians who very actively appeal to, uh, you know, swaths of the population that previously have felt like governments didn't care about them. And Beron is particularly well known for this, right? He uh, was a very beloved figure. He presented himself in sort of a paternalist fashion as someone who was going to take care of the masses. And he came to power in a sort of a unusual way. He was the minister of labor, I want to say, under a military government that came into power during World War II. And leading members of the military began to recognize him as a little bit of a threat. And so they imprisoned him, uh, trying to sort of cut out the competition. And there was this mass outpouring in the street of support for him that really showed just how strong the sort of popular support for him as a political figure had become and really paved the way to his ascent. Um, uh, as you mentioned, his wife, his first wife, Evita, also became a really beloved uh, national figure. Madonna, I believe, was the one who played her in that movie that was made in the United States about her. Um, so she's often one of the names that my students know when they do come to class, not having had the opportunity to take Latin American history before. Um, so he had this earlier period where he was in power until 1955. And that was sort of the period that is associated with his very charismatic sort of populist moment. Um, he did a lot to advance uh, sort of um, the status of, of labor rights. So workers were especially often um, committed to him. Uh, there's been some sort of controversy over whether you know, he was kind of co-opting their cause and taking advantage of them or whether this was a genuine relationship um, in part because of how things played out later. In 55, he there, there was a coup staged against him. He went into exile. And the in the years that followed, uh, Peronism was prohibited as a political party. And it made it so that the democratic governments that were in power uh, had a really hard time establishing themselves as legitimate because there was always the case to be made that if Peronism had been acceptable or if Peron himself had been a candidate, that this person might not have won. So these were somewhat turbulent years politically in which the military did intervene a few times. Uh, and there was always constant advocacy for Peron to be able to return to Argentina. Where he was, was he? In Spain. Mm -hmm. So when he came back, um, <clears throat> In the early 1970s, in the context of this, you know, kind of uh, political turbulence, um, he had a different wife and um, Isabelita, who is far less famous than Evita and far less beloved, because in fact, after Peron's death, she became president and she was the president that the coup uh, was carried out against. But she was much more right wing. Peron's politics at this point were sort of a mystery to people who supported him. Um, so this was a later and more uh, challenging period to make sense of in terms of his uh, presence. But um, the fact that, you know, the president today is a, a member of the Peronist Party um, speaks to the endurance of his influence. But it also can be quite confusing for those of us who grew up in the United States, because I remember when I arrived in Argentina, um, I asked someone, is is the Peronist party right or left? And they just laughed because within the Peronist party, there are those that are really quite far right and those that are really quite far left. And it's not a, a party that can be 
uh, divided or defined ideologically. It's more like there are two po- two opposite camps. Um, and in part, that reflects the legacy of Perón, that he sort of, uh, his legacy is malleable enough that people on both sides of the political spectrum could claim him as their champion. The Kirchners? So the Kirchners represented the sort of left of center side of Peronism. Um, yeah. And it's so interesting because uh, uh, it's a mystery for many of us when they talk about Peronistas, you know, people that will align with Peron because Peron itself, as you were saying, it was such an elusive uh, figure in um uh, during his two periods when he was president, and then his wife, as you mentioned, his second wife, Isabel Perón. So, but uh, but I want to pause a moment here and just remind our listeners that you are listening to KZYX. Uh, it's our community radio station here in Mendocino County. My name is Loreto Rojas, and I'm here uh, with Carl Winslow, my co-host in Talking About California. And today we are in our third interview of this series of this um spring 2023, and we are talking with uh, Rebecca Herman, professor of Latin American studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and we are discussing Argentina and its importance in in the in South America and what it means the relationship uh, with other countries in the region and also the presence of the United States in that area. In an effort to understand a little bit more the politics and the situations that are happening in what many of Latinos know as the the backyard of the United States, no, the United, the South America territory, and in this line of thought, uh, I must ask you uh, because I know you have been studying environmental issues that are happening in Argentina. When we be- began, uh, at the beginning of this interview, you were men- uh, we mentioned that uh, Argentina uh, uh, has claimed, along with Chile, a portion of Antarctica. And uh, this is something that's very interesting because even many times uh, when I draw Chile in a map, I always say, well, and then is this section that it comes it's uh, it's almost like a geometry lesson because it comes from the center of what is recognized as the south pole and then it shoots out uh, creating a cone that is one is claimed by chile and the other by argentina can you tell us a little bit what this uh, claiming these territories imply for the for these two countries particularly for argentina and uh, how that plays in the geopolitical geopolitical scene of the world at this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for Argentina, there are a number of ways that the, the state rationalizes or justifies that claim. So uh, part of it is rooted in the colonial legacy. Um, you know, they argue that the sort of treaty that divided the Americas between the Spanish and the Portuguese, uh, which is why Brazil is Portuguese speaking while the rest of South America is Spanish speaking, um, was a line that cut straight through all the way down to uh, Antarctica. And so therefore by this sort of early papal agreement, part of the Antarctic Peninsula aligns with Argentine territory. Um, Part of the claim has to do with an idea about uh, geological continuity. So there was an argument for a long time that the Andean mountain range continued under the ocean and then is visible on the Antarctic Peninsula. And so there was this sort of geographic uh, rationale for asserting that that um, that right, 
part of it is proximity. I mean, the southern tip of Argentina and Chile is very close to the Antarctic Peninsula, and it's the closest of any continent by a, by a long shot. Uh, it's kind of neat to look at maps of the world that have our Antarctica at the center, because then you really get a perspective on how close uh, Ushuaia, which is the southernmost city in Argentina, is to the Antarctic Peninsula, in contrast to, for example, New Zealand or Australia, which are other countries in the Southern Hemisphere that have claims to Antarctic territory, but are actually separated by a lot more ocean than Argentina and Chile are. Um, and then finally, in the, in the 20th century, most of the national claims around the world, so there are, gosh, let's see, I think seven countries that have sovereignty claims to Antarctic territory. All of those claims are currently suspended, and I can say more about that in a second, but each of those countries, um, those other countries tend to stake their claims on uh, early explorations of Antarctica that give them some entitlement because they were the first to do X, Y, or Z. Um, so in that spirit, Argentina boasts the first meteorological station, I think it was from 1905, um, and has these other kinds of claims that other countries also uh, assert. What got me interested in this project, because I'm really a 20th century historian, I'm interested in, in politics and social history, was during this last period of military dictatorship that we were talking about a few minutes ago, the Argentine government, the military government was very eager to reassert Argentine claims to that space. And so they carried out a program that the Argentine government in previous decades had considered but never followed through with, which was to try to colonize Antarctica with a civilian population. So at that point you have uh, research stations that are essentially military bases, because it's usually a country's military that have to handle all of the logistics, but they're research stations that are meant to be only used for scientific research. Um, what Argentina did, and then Chile followed suit a few years later, was to begin sending the wives and children of military officials to one particular settlement in Antarctica to establish a civilian colony that would help to say, look, we have Argentines who live here. This is part of our country. And they started this effort by airlifting a woman who was seven months pregnant to Antarctica so that she would be the first person to give birth there. <laughs> and the first native Antarctican would be an Argentine citizen. And I read about this and I just thought this is fascinating. And then the more I got into it and trying to understand the context and why the, the Argentine military would be so uh, fixated on this at this particular moment, I began to understand the broader context around the environmental politics in Antarctica. Um, but Pinochet and Chile, he followed suit. They had, were a number of Chilean babies born, and both countries had these two uh, civilian settlements with a schoolhouse and uh, chapel and weddings and baptisms and these very symbolic rituals that we associate with, you know, um, the relationship between a population and the state. Yeah, and, um, and Becca, I want to remind our audience that this is a, a territory where there are not other humans, you know, right. and, and that's an element uh, to also just to be reminded. So so by, by bringing all that people and creating a public school, which has a number and everything, and they change the teachers constantly, it's a way to claim an ownership of this territory. But for what reasons? I know you're going to tell us now. Yeah, so that's a great question because it's expensive. It's a little bit dangerous. You know, it's not the safest place, certainly, to give birth to a child, much less raise one. 
there are months of the year where the sun doesn't rise. You know, it's not a pleasant place to live. Uh, I wouldn't think as a stay-at-home mother, <laughs> I have two young kids. If we couldn't go outside for four months, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> so, um, you know, this was really painted as an important nationalist cause for the people who were making this big sacrifice for the nation. And part of the reason it's such a, a source of nationalist pride and sort of nationalist sentiment is the, there's a third country that has claims to the same territory as Argentina and Chile, and that's Great Britain. So I mentioned that, um, you know, Britain has always had a really powerful influence in Argentina since the period of independence. Argentina attempted to, um, I'm sorry, uh, Britain attempted to really assert itself formally and informally in Argentine politics from the period that the Spanish were beginning to weaken. And uh Britain has been really economically powerful in the region. So a lot of the anti-imperialism that people in Central America or Mexico might more naturally orient towards the United States, Argentina historically has felt that way about British power. Um, and and I during... must mention, sorry, uh, probably you were going there, I'm sorry to interrupt you, about the war where they tried to the actually Maldives. take the, the islands, yes. the Faulkner's. Yeah. That's exactly right. So Argentina, beyond the uh, continental territory, has claimed to Antarctic territory and also to islands in the South Atlantic. And among those islands are islands that the Argentines call the Malvinas Islands, but the British call the Falkland Islands. And this has been a really sore point for Argentines for ages, right? The uh, British asserting a territorial right to territory that Argentines claimed as theirs. And this came to a head during the military dictatorship as well, because one of the moves that the dictatorship made in part to try to boost their uh, reputation and their sort of allegiance among Argentine citizens was to retake the Falkland Islands from the British. Um, and it was a complete military disaster. Great Britain responded quickly and, um, and uh, the Argentine soldiers who had gone there suffered greatly. It was sort of eye-opening to find out that the people who lived in the Falkland Islands or the Malvinas Islands seemed to prefer British colonial rule over Argentine citizenship. Um, and it was just really a disaster for the Argentine military government. And it was part of what paved the way for a complete return to democracy because it was really delegitimizing for them. Um, so that whole sort of long-standing source of tension with Great Britain has always made the fate of of Antarctic territory politically charged. But in reality, things have been fairly smooth. Uh, this was a moment where it seemed like things might change, but since the um, late 50s, early 60s, there's been a system of governance in Antarctica that is sort of an international treaty-based system where um, there's a treaty called the Antarctic Treaty and uh, all of the claimant countries ascribed to that treaty are members of the treaty. And then a number of other countries that are interested in Antarctica are, are also involved, were involved in its creation or have since joined. The bar for membership to this treaty system is that you have to be um, carrying out substantial scientific research in Antarctica. Um, and Argentina and Chile as claimant countries were there at the foundation of this treaty system and are really important and active members of that international treaty system. From what I can tell and what I hear anecdotally from Argentine colleagues who work in this area is that most people 
don't know about that system. What they know is Argentina has territory in Antarctica. Um, and they're much more aware of the national ties than they are to this international system of governance. Um, but essentially that treaty system, it, neither, it, it sort of doesn't confirm or deny these territorial claims. It, it freezes them, if you'll forgive the pun. It says, uh, you know, we don't recognize these sovereignty claims, but we also don't deny them for now, as long as this treaty is enforced, no new claims can be made. And we will just sort of agree to disagree. So there are international research stations pertaining to all different countries uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula, including in Argentine and Chilean territory. But both Argentina and Chile have really focused their research stations in the territories that they claim, in part because they do double duty. On the one hand, they allow each nation to advance their scientific contributions to Antarctic science, but they also allow those countries to sort of maintain a physical presence that can help to defend those territorial claims in the future if the Antarctic Treaty System uh, fails in some way. I have uh, one more question, Loretta. I hope we have time for one more. Um, uh, for the older generation, there was the thinking that um, Latin America in, in general was this vast, uh, vast area of poverty and exploitation and, and uh, so forth. Um, we, that was Che Guevara. We all read a, a book by uh, John Jurassic called The Great Fear in Latin America. Um, to what degree does that kind of, is that kind of thinking um, obsolete today or how how do students uh, especially your more pro progressive students how do they feel about uh, latin america mm, yeah that's a great question i will say uh che Guevara was argentine yeah uh, yeah and he was um you know his own background is interesting because it kind of reflects that there's more to it than a, a vast field of poverty he was a, a pr very privileged upper class med student who was sort of had his political awakening traveling around Latin America and seeing poverty where he had been sort of insulated from it himself growing up. So I think, you know, uh, poverty is certainly an important part of the story. And what I find the longer I teach the history of 20th century Latin America as a region and try to find common threads, because it's such a diverse region as you're underscoring in this series, right? The history of Argentina and the history of El Salvador are really hard to cover in one semester as part of a coherent narrative. But one thing that I think the entire region shares over the course of the 20th century is this, the ongoing effort by uh, people who are seeking to combat drastic inequality to try to find solutions and then feeling thwarted by a sort of small, powerful elite. And so you can see that happen in different waves and in, in different uh, ways over the course of the 20th century. Um, but um, uh, in Argentina, you know, because of the size and the wealth of the country, the sort of, for example, literacy rates have historically been higher. The middle class in Argentina has historically been larger than many of the other countries in the region. So there's some diversity there. But I think this sort of constant drive to try to uh, improve the quality of life of poor people 
has been an ongoing project of the left and sometimes of the center and the sort of ideological coalitions that cut across, whereas uh, they've been sort of constantly butting up against um, uh, advocates of a smaller government with less of a social safety net, less of an obligation to to, uh, bring up citizens and more focused on kind of export oriented models of economic growth that tend to really benefit a smaller uh, group of people at the expense of of the rest. So that tends to be a narrative that does fit um, region wide with some obvious variations. Well, thank you so much, Becca, uh, Professor Herman, today to talk to us. Uh, I'm afraid we are running out of time, so, but this has been great to hear you and to learn about Argentina. And we hope that we can talk again in the future and follow your progress in your uh, historian career and books and investigations. So important for all of us to learn about it. Um, Professor Herman is an historian, historian of modern Latin America at UC Berkeley. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today uh, and listen, talking about California, we're special series in South America. Uh, we hope you will join us. My name is Loreto Rojas, and I am here with Carl Winslow, my co-host. We will be back in two weeks, also in the morning, the same day, same time, for our final segment in this series, where we will uh, look into Chile. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.